So it's good to see you all. Good to see you, um, Don, Anita, Jacob, Dave, Jenny, Aaron, Ketura, Michael, Sai. Great to see you all. And um, as always, we're going to start with a joke. I also, oh, I have just a little housekeeping. I have to tell you, if you ordered a book, they told me that the books did not ship due to bad weather up north. Not something we have to deal with, but something that we can laugh at. Um, the other thing I want to say is, um, hope you all did some exercise about what, uh, you know, what we said, but even if you didn't, today's class would be great. Today's class, we're going to take a different um, avenue, but of course, we're going to start with a joke. For his 70th birthday, a Zen master was given a big giant box with a ribbon around it. And when the master opened the box, he found nothing inside and he said, aha, just what I wanted. Okay, for those who don't get it, um, I guess you don't know much about Zen masters, as, as I don't either. But either way, um, it's not a very funny joke. Don't worry, I'll follow it up with an even funnier joke soon. <laughs> but this is really uh, going to be some of the topic about today and uh, really an idea that we've been discussing, which is the difference between Jewish meditation and meditation from Sinai. And last week, and if you have your student book, you can find the recording on it. Well, if you have that from last week, oh, that, sorry, that does remind me. I want to post it here. If you want to have access to the text, even when I'm not showing it, I just sent a link over there um, in the chat. So last week we discussed how meditation is authentically Jewish. There's something that a lot of people question, you know, is meditation really Jewish or not? But meditation is definitely a Jewish thing. And uh, last week, we spoke about it mostly in our emotional part. In other words, that uh, through meditating, contemplating ideas, we have the capacity to overcome our negative feelings. And that is because we are in control of what we think. And when we think, that's how we feel. And so that is meditation at its very simplest form, meditation from Sinai. However, all of that meditation was focused very much, it wasn't a spiritual meditation. It was just a general idea that how you think is how you feel. That's how Judaism views it. And uh, we can choose what we think. And we were taught to grab hold of our thoughts, which can run in many different directions. And we also discussed how positive thoughts can bring positivity to you and the people around you. And this week, we're going to give meditation a little bit more of a spiritual bite to it. We're going to give it a little more, um, not just a meditation that makes you help feel better, but a meditation that helps you feel what is beyond. A meditation helps you feel beyond what you see and to enable you to see what you normally cannot see. And this meditation will have two forms. So let us begin in this week's lesson. So I've already given you the breakdown of this week's lesson. The breakdown of this week's lesson is we're going to learn meditation, Jewish meditation that allows you to see beyond what is normally seen. And this meditation um, takes place in two forms. We're going to discuss form number one, then we're going to discuss form number two, and then we're going to do an exercise in form number two. They say the story of a, uh, um, a, a great meditator, a Zen master again, who heads off to the corner store to buy a Laffy Taffy. In those days, the Laffy Taffy's were 50 cents. Today, they're probably $1.25. So he heads off to the, he heads off to buy a Laffy Taffy. And uh, he gives that, of course, 
he was buying a Laffy Taffy so he could have some more jokes for his sermons. But anyways, so uh, he buys, he, he uh, gives a dollar and he gets the Laffy Taffy and he's waiting for, uh, you know, he gives a dollar waiting for another 50 cents. And the uh, store owner looks at the Zen master and says, I'm sorry, but change comes from within. Okay, sorry about that. But that is really what we're going to do today. Change comes from within. Spirituality, if you want to discover spirituality, it comes from within. There are many people that seek spirituality. People go to the far ends of the earth to seek spirituality. People travel to places where they normally wouldn't travel, travel beyond mountains and under valleys and upstreams and in India and, and sleep in places they normally wouldn't sleep. Some people, some of us are spiritual seekers and we will seek it in many different ways. Maybe it's sitting in a spitz room, sitting in a room which is very hot and sweating out and all different ways that people try to attain spirituality. Some people don't feel, don't feel spirituality at all. You know, Sometimes we experience moments of spirituality and we wish we could have it again. Maybe it's a moment when a child is born, a day of your wedding, um, a grandchild. Oh, there, there, there are moments, for, you know, kids first day of school, graduating, whatever it is. We feel a moment, a fleeting experience of something beyond the day-to-day -day grind. Maybe somebody passed away. That's another way. We have these not in the spiritual. And so the question is, is it possible for us to have a real sense of spiritual? And today we're going to define, define spiritual from the word spirit, which spirit is obviously something beyond the physical, something we see. And what we need to know is that Rabbi, you're frozen. You're frozen. I thought it was just me. Um, not sure. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I don't know what's going on. You're unfrozen. I'm, I'm unfrozen. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on with the internet here. It is the internet here. It's not your internet. Even though we were saying how changes come from within, and really it's probably a problem with your internet and not my internet, because really your internet has to, has to change. But um, no, honestly, I, I don't know. It's it's um, my, my, my part crashed for some reason. Either way, uh, today we are defining the spirit as something that's beyond and whether you are a person who seeks spirituality, which hopefully most people here are, and just as an aside, Judaism is very much into this spirituality. If you practice Judaism, Judaism necessitates a spiritual feeling. On the very most basic level, you have to love God, and God is more in the spirit, right? Spirituality. Um, the emotional attachments to God and uh, awareness of the spiritual nature of God, not to mention, you know, so all these things that Judaism requires spirituality. But even if you're not into that, um, I think that when we end off today's class, you will have a greater appreciation for spirituality and why it would be important for you to spend time to gain spirituality. So how are we going to get our spirituality? How are we going to get there? And obviously, you know, the answer to this is a course of meditation. 
But let's first um, stop for a moment. Um, we started off the saying how our day-to-day -day grind is uh, very physical and spirituality can seem far off. Spirituality doesn't come to us very often. If we have that outlook that spirituality is far away, as many have, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult and distant path to get, then we need to do some crazy stuff to get there. However, as we're going to define today, that spirituality is not something that you seek from the outside, you find it from the inside. And the reason why I'm saying this again, it's important to understand that what we're seeking is within us. We don't have to go elsewhere. And so therefore it won't require anything crazy, maybe different, but it won't be crazy and it's not impossible. So let's take a look at text number one. And uh, text number one, if you don't have the, um, if you don't have it, it's, uh, I did put a link in the thing, but again, you can also look it on the screen. So text number one, this is from the Torah. And this is how the Torah defines our soul. And it says that God formed the human from the dust of the ground and he breathed into the human's nostrils, the soul of life. This is a very short verse. This is talking about the creation of the human being. And this is an important verse because what it's saying is, is that we have two parts to us. If you look in the Bible, you'll see that every other being was created body and soul at the same time. The human being was created separately, the body and the soul. And I've, I've mentioned this in other classes. And the reason is because we are made up of two very distinct um, identities. Let's put it that way. We have two very distinct identities within us. We have our body identity, which is made from the dust of the earth, meaning it's very corporal, it's very physical. And we have our soul identity. We have a body-oriented nature and we have a soul-oriented nature. And we can operate on a different levels of consciousness. And both of these levels of consciousness have conflicting priorities and drives. We've spoken about this in our class, Warrior to Warrior. If you recall, we spoke there about the godly soul and the animal soul. And we defined why we call it the animal soul and why not the animal soul. But suffice it to say that within you, you have these two identities and orientations, shall I say. Uh, you have the, bo you know, the body and the soul. You have these two identities, the animal soul and the godly soul. And they actually want two different things. And for the most part, we are very familiar with our body consciousness or what I might call the animal soul. However, sometimes we seek spirituality because we get sick of, so to speak, the body consciousness and our soul is vying for expression. And if we can get in touch with the soul consciousness, which is really a part of ourselves, then we will be able to find some spirituality. So again, what we're saying here is that we as human beings are made up of these two levels of consciousness, the body and the soul, or what's known in, in the Hasidic parlance as the animal soul and the godly soul, as we saw from the verse. We, you know, we were first created as the body, then as the soul. And, that, and um, if we are able to put aside the body for a moment, and I don't mean literally putting your body away, but that means that type of thinking that's totally connected to the body, the part of your body that just wants babka, and we can get to the soul part of our body, then we can have spirituality. In other words, spirituality is not a, a experience that is far away from you. It's already part of you. God gave you a soul. How do we know that this soul is very spiritual? Let's see in text number two. 
let's see just how spiritual this, this soul is. And we see in text of number two. And uh, this is from the morning prayers. Elokai Nishama Shanatatavi. I'm going to make this text a little larger so that for those of you, uh, 125. Okay. My God, the soul that you placed within me is pure. You created it. You formed it. You breathed it into me. And look at the word pure. It is pure. That means it's a pristine spiritual force. In other words, you might think, as many mistakenly think, that the soul is just like a battery pack, right? The soul is just a battery pack that allows you to be alive. And what we're trying to say here today is, no, that soul that God gives you, it is pure. It is a part of God. And what is, and therefore, if it's a part of God, it wants to live with God. It wants to live in something greater than itself. The soul is the voice within us that is seeking meaning and purpose. And it senses the spirit of everything. Now, I know that was a lot of words. <laughs> and we can unpack each of those few lines I said about it. But again, what we're saying here is that this soul that's inside of you is not, this is why it's important. That's why I showed you that text. The soul is not just a battery pack. Because if it was just a battery pack, then you could say, well, I'm a physical being with a soul. It's my battery pack that allows me to live. Kind of like an animal. An animal has a, a soul in it, but you know, it's, it's not necessarily focused on higher and spiritual things. But no, a human being has a godly soul. And what that means is with inside of you, there is that pure piece of God with inside of you. And because it is pure and it's a piece of God, it is seeking meaning and purpose. Your animalistic soul or your body consciousness is not seeking meaning and purpose, uh, unless meaning and purpose is ice cream and, and, and cheesecake, you know, or maybe uh, money and fame and power and whatever else it can get. But now we're going to take it a step further. So till now we're saying, well, the soul is mission focused. It has meaning and purpose, but it's actually a little more than that. It's kind of interesting. What is a soul compared to? Does anybody know? Put in the chat. There's something very famous that a soul is compared to. Anybody has any thoughts? What is a soul compared to? If, uh, if you've hung around enough, what, is, what, what physical thing do we compare to a soul? Huh? Fire. Ah, oh, very good. All right. We love the in-person. They, they get it right every time. Okay. Fire. Yes. The uh, a flame. Oh, I see here also on the text. A flame, a fire. Yep. Exactly. So let's... Um, no, how do I close that? Just one second. Oops. Just one second. I am uh, playing or fiddling around over here with my... Uh, with my uh, okay. So let's take a look at the text. This is text number three, so you know that I'm not making it up. And it says like this. Uh, this is from King Solomon. And King Solomon says, Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam. The human soul is a candle of God. All right, now there's many meanings of what he can mean. And if you have, if you'll get the book, you'll see in the um, appendix many, many different explanations of what it means that the human soul is a candle of God. Uh, very simply, I think all of you know when it comes, let's say, uh, 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 a car or a yard site, we light a candle because it commemorates a soul, right? But what does it mean deeper? What is, what is the meaning that it is like a candle? And the Kabbalists give us a very fascinating explanation. So there's a lot of explanations. You can imagine, I'm using Jewish. There's more than, you know, one explanation about what it means. So what does it mean that, that you know, a soul is like a candle? But there's a very fascinating Hasidic explanation. 
And this Hasidic explanation goes like this. I'm going to look at it in this text, text number four. And he says like this. This is from the Alter Rebbe in Tanya, chapter 19. And he says like this. The nature of a flame is to flicker upward, indicating that the flame intrinsically seeks to part from its wick in order to unite with its source above. Similarly, oh, are you, similarly, the human soul naturally desires and yearns to separate itself and escape its body in order to unite with its origin and source in God, the blessed source of all life. So fire is a very fascinating uh, and unique um, material in this world in a couple of ways. But one of the ways is the first thing is that it's always trying to go upwards. There is nothing else that I know of that is always trying to, um, you know, head straight up, except for it was one of those, uh, the, the little rascals, alfalfa had something on top of his head that was always stick up. And that's what I remember, but, uh, you know, everything, everything in life, go, you know, either going down or up or sideways, you know, depends on the way the wind is blowing, as they say, fire is always trying to go up, even if going up means it's going to put itself out. For example, if you take a candle and you flip it upside down, the flame is going to go upwards and it's going to put itself out it has no, you know, gets choked off. So fire is a very, very fascinating thing. And uh, it's indicative of the soul. The soul also wants to go up. The soul really wants to connect with the truth. There is only one true thing that is God. It, does, it, 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 has, it doesn't relate to what the body wants. You know, the body desires to be down here. The body, um, or shall I say, everything in this world, anything that's worldly, all it wants to do is to be here. Anything, anything this world wants to be here. We try and stake ourselves a place in this world. You know, everybody wants more of this world. We want more food. We want more money. We want more house. We want more fame, more riches, more kids. Uh, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, I want more of everything, right? More vacations, more whatever it is in your life. We all we all we all want to be here more, right? Nobody wants to be here less. That's the nature. Same thing with animals. You know, animals, they all want to mark their territory, you know. They, they, they anything physical and so just just trying to get a space, just trying to get an in. Trees, in fact, they study trees. Trees are trying to push each other out. If you look into it, it's very fascinating. The forest, the trees, you know, they things try and choke them up. They, Everybody just wants space in this world. And there's one thing in this world that doesn't want space in this world. One example is fire. Fire really doesn't really want to be here. You force it to be here. You give it some fuel, it'll burn the fuel. But when it's done, it's, it's gone. It doesn't, it's not trying to stick around. It's trying to go. Fire doesn't hang out for very long. Thank God. You know, fire is not something that's sustainable on this earth. It's always trying to leave. And it says the same thing as our soul. Our soul is not trying to get more involved in this world. It's always trying to get beyond. It's trying to connect with something that's away, because the soul recognizes the futility of materialism. The soul recognizes that there's no point in it. And so it's like a soul is trying to escape this world, it's trying to return to the ethereal. And if you become aware of this inner flame, then you would be operating on a totally different level. And we could discuss, you know, it, it, it could become dangerous as we might, we'll get to later on. But, um, most of the time, we are not aware of this desire of our soul. So again, our soul does not desire this world, does not desire the physicality that it's stuck in. It's always trying to escape, but we're not usually aware of that desire of our soul. Our material desires and our material drives are the ones that are right in front of us. The, our body and, phys and physical needs are the ones that are right in front of us. They're immediate and they're urgent. I need food. I need sleep. 
I need money. I need housing. Those are the things that are right in front of our eyes. That's where we're running to. That's why our default is driven by the material needs. They're right in front of us. And on a day-to-day basis, the identity that we embody, no pun intended, is the physical sensations and material pursuits. That's what, And we don't relate with the spiritual description of the soul that we just learned about. And even when we feel something spiritual, and we feel an urge for meaning and depth, they're only hints of the soul. In other words, relative spirituality. But a true sense of spirituality, a yearning for transcendence, is something that may seem foreign and difficult and something that we, that we don't usually feel. Now, again, you may ask me if the soul, all it wants to do is to leave this earth, does that mean that uh, it's not like kind of suicide? You know, the soul that wants, you know, the soul is desiring to... So actually the answer is yes. The natural state of the soul is suicide. Now, stop for a moment. It's true. The soul did not want to come down to this earth. The soul that's in your body was very happy in heaven. You didn't want to come down here. God said, sorry, I got a mission for you. You got to go down to this earth. So the soul, its natural desire is to leave, but it also understands that God has a mission for it here in this earth. And that's why it typically doesn't leave. And therefore, it's going to do that mission. And, and through its mission, it realizes that it can connect to God even more. But what I'm, what I'm getting to is that the nature of your soul, again, not a superimposed desire, the nature of your soul is this fiery flame of wanting to connect to God, a fiery flame of wanting to escape what you're mired in. And if we can tap into a little bit of that fire, we can, so to speak, elevate ourselves to living beyond the here and the now, to living beyond the ice cream and the cheesecake and, and, and the sushi. I'm sorry if I'm taking a shot at sushi. But, uh, but honestly, all of these things that we chase all day, they're physical. They don't mean anything in the long term. And the soul realizes, and the soul is screaming at us, like, why are you spending so much money and time and effort into getting sushi? Why are you spending so much time, money, and effort into getting the, the box seats at the uh, World Series or the Super Bowl, or, you know, the soul is always there screaming at us. It's like, well, what's it going to do for you? You know, you get to heaven. What, what, what does it mean? Even here on earth, like it has no meaning to the soul, to the soul. It's not important. Oh, you want to go to the game to put filling on people. There's actually this great video going around. There was in Israel, there was, um, uh, you probably saw it, maybe you didn't. In Israel, there's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a video. There's a yeshiva student trying to get, you know, Israeli teenagers to put on tefillin. And uh, so one of the teenagers comes to the, uh, the, the young Chabad student standing there. And he says, if you could do more chin-ups, there was like a bus stop there. So there was a bar there. He says, if you could do more chin-ups than me, um, you know, I'll put on tefillin. So you see first the, the, the secular teenager, he runs up and he does chin-ups and doing really slowly. One, two, and gets, I think, 13 or something, 14 maybe. And then the yeshiva bacher takes his hat off, goes over one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> you know? So he was doing spiritual chin-ups. Those are very spiritual. You can imagine, of course, the guy put on tefillin. You know, he did, uh, you know, he did the spiritual chin-ups. So again, the soul, of course, if you're doing something physical, but it has a spiritual goal in it, all in, all in. But that, that, that focus on the physical, the, 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 um, the, the godly soul and the soul inside of you has no desire for. So how do, we, how do we get in touch? So again, to recap, we started off today that today we're going to discuss meditation that is going to allow us to connect with the spirit. We said spirituality is not something that's far away from us. It's inside of us. It's our soul. 
But now we're presenting a problem. Yes, we have this powerful soul and this soul that all it wants to do is to cleave to something beyond. It wants to reach to something beyond our day-to-day experiences, but this will bring us a problem. And that problem is that, uh, yes, I understand my soul wants it, but as we've just described the problem, our, our animal soul and our bodily desires stand in the way. And in a really powerful way, they're in the way. So how are we going to circumvent that? And the answer to that question is, meditation meditation is going to be our trick and our way out of of allowing ourselves to shed our the physical and connect with the spiritual and there are two general types of meditation that allow us to get there we're going to first talk about one then we're going to talk about the second one now some of the items in the first meditation we're going to talk about are not necessarily practical But the reason why I'm teaching this to you is because this is also an educational class. And so you should know the history of Jewish meditation and just how important it was in Judaism. So again, some of the items in the first type of meditation to connect with our soul are not necessarily practiced today, but it's important for you to know from an educational perspective, uh, understanding just how people think that Judaism coming to meditation is a Johnny come lately. All right, so before we discuss the... uh, first type of meditation, which will allow us to connect with our soul, I would like to tell you a good joke. So a businessman is uh, getting sick of his uh, day-to-day grind and life and rat race, as they call it. So he decided to visit a monastery to live a simpler life. And so he walks into the monastery, he sees some monks in the, uh, in the field, and uh, they, they're, you know, they're just working the earth and living a very beautiful spiritual life. And he says, ah, here is a life devoid of distraction. And then he walks further into the monastery, he opens up the door and he walks through Then he sees, and now he gets confused, he sees a bunch of monks. Some of them are touching their Apple iPhones. Some of them are on their iPads. Some of them are on their phones. He's shaking, what's going on over here? This is supposed to be a life of uh, free of distraction, a life of freedom. And uh, finally, he walks into the, I think they're called the abbot, right? The abbot, the guy, the head guy, the head honcho, the head monk, whatever they're called. And he walks into the office and he says, walks in the office and the guy over there looks up from his phone also. And he says, excuse me, I, I, I came here understanding that this is a place free of distraction. And I see all your monks are walking around and all they're doing all day is answering emails. How, how does that work? So the head monk looks at him and says, there's no problem with looking at emails as long as there's no attachments. Okay, all right, sorry. Um, and that's really what we're, gonna, what we're discussing today is we have these things that attach us, these attachments. There are these things that are pulling us down to this earth, whether it's the thought of that chocolate or the thought of that ice cream or the sushi or the ball game or the latkes. Oh, well, latkes are holy, sorry. Uh, you know, uh, all of these things are pulling us down. And so the simplest way of reaching our soul is by, so to speak, getting rid of uh, the bodily desire. Sounds simple, right? You know, as if we said, all we have to do is reach our soul. So very simple, spirituality by subtraction. If we are aware that we have a soul inside of us, all we need to do is find a meditation that will silence our material drives. And once we can silence our material drives and we strip away the surface and we take away all the layers of our identity driven by ego, then we can uncover our spiritual awareness. And when we identify more closely with that awareness, we will open ourselves up to spiritual experiences. And this is what's known as hit bodidut. Hit bodidut 
comes from the word badad, which means aloneness or seclusion. It encourages people to distance themselves from material distraction, and that will allow them a way to discover spirituality. Let's take a look at text number five to show you hit bodidut. And many of you may have heard of this before. It is very common, uh, mostly common, as we'll discuss soon, of the followers of Nachman of Breslov. So here is the, uh, the son of the Rambam. He wrote a Sefer. So this is uh, going 800 years ago. He says like this. Hit bodidut seclusion is one of the most superior of the distinguished practices. It is a practice of the greatest saints and the medium through which the prophets experienced revelation. So again, he's saying seclusion is such an important thing, secluding yourself. And again, as we're going to discuss seclusion, not just in space, but you know, physical around you, but seclusion in your mind. In other words, seclusion was not a goal in its own right. Almost all meditations have to have some level of quiet. As the Rebbe once said, if you want to meditate, you're not going to sit down in Times Square and try and meditate, right? <laughs> it's not exactly the best place to meditate. Um, but here the purpose was to, being alone was to experience your inner aloneness. In other words, not only to move away from the material distractions outside of you, but to also to mentally move away from the material distractions inside of you. And when you free yourself from the material input and, and stimulation, and you distance yourself internally from the material and self-indulgence, then you can focus on your inner aloneness and your true aloneness, the one who you really are, which is your soul. You know, let me just give, you know, um, describe it to you like this. Imagine you were placed in a jacuzzi for uh, medical reasons, and you were not allowed to have anything, nobody to talk to, no videos playing on a screen, no cell phone, it would just be you alone sitting there, you and your thoughts. Most of us would go a little crazy. Uh, where am I getting this from? In fact, I, um, uh, I, I tried it once a little bit. Um, I once did, uh, I actually did it many times, but I did, uh, what's it called? Hyperbaric oxygen chambers. Hyperbaric oxygen chambers, these, these, the, you basically sit in a, a chamber, they lock you in there and um, they did that, the place I went to, they actually do have screens. So I used to bring my own DVDs, but if they would finish, I mean, unless you catch the attention of the attendant, I mean, you're just stuck there, just laying there by yourself, you know, just laying like this and just all you have is your thoughts. And, um, you know, you can't think, I mean, you can think about food, but it's not going to do much for you. Uh, you know, who are you in those moments? What do you think about? What are you identifying with? And this is really what we're trying to get to. Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky used to talk about this. He was once you know, brought somewhere and he, he, where he had to sit by himself with nothing. And he felt so uncomfortable just being with himself. But this is what Hidbodidut is. Be alone with yourself and allow yourself to experience the real you, your soul. Remove all distractions externally, your cell phone, your TV, away. Remove all distractions, go into the forest. Let's say it's the easiest way to do it, obviously. Remove all distractions internally. Don't think about your tasks. Don't think about what you have to do. Imagine there was nothing that you could do at this moment, like you're stuck in an oxygen chamber. And so they would empty their minds and they would allow their minds to fill with the master of all existence. And so let's look at text number six as he describes it. The Shalah HaKadosh describes it like this. Text number six. It is recorded in many of the works of the medieval rabbis that the seclusion is bodedot separation from everything Parishut and devotional clinging to Vekut were practiced by the pious Jews. 
This is to say that when they were alone, they would empty their minds of all worldly concerns and connect their minds with the master of all existence. The famed Kabbalist, the Arizal, taught that this practice is far more beneficial for the soul than study. And that every person should practice this seclusion, meditation, according to their ability, either once a week, once a fortnight, or at least, at the very least, once a month. So if we were to break it down, there are three elements to this type of meditation. There is seclusion, which means removing external distractions. There is separation, which means clearing the mind of internal distractions, giving yourself space. And then finally, there is clinging, the ability to access your soul. Now you may ask, Rabbi, all right, you show me the ancient method of it, Bodhidut. In fact, we have stories of the Baal Shem Tov. You would run into the forest. Is this at all practice today? So first of all, the most famous form of hit bodidut, separation meditation, is practiced by the followers of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Uh, if anybody, anybody here watched the movie Ushpizin? You watched the movie Ushpizin? Yeah, it's a movie of a uh, Breslov chassid. And one of the most poignant scenes in the movie is that there's actually two scenes. One scene, you could see him sitting on a, on a park bench and just talking to God and talking till he gets himself like worked up. Then he like lifts up his eyes and screams to heaven. And there's another one where, you know, he experienced a really terrible experience and he runs into the forest and he talks to God and he's crying and he's screaming. This is what Rabbi Nachman of Breslov asked his students to do. This is what he wanted them to do. And um, let's take a look. And you may say, well, it's not exactly what we described here. Again, it's, it's a form of it's bodhidut. He did ask them to go into the forest. And his idea was that, um, uh, let me see, text number 16. Uh, let's take a look. All right, let's read what he says. Now, the idea was, there's another way of removing distraction. And this was Rabbi Nachman of Bressel's idea, is you can remove distractions through talking. Now, this is very hard to remove distraction in your mind alone. And so his idea was to talk it out. And that's a way to separate yourself from some sections of your life and connect with other sections of your life through talking it out, not just using your mind, but using speech, the power of speech. So let's read what he says over here. And we're just going to read this one text. Where we not going to breast up. He says like this. Hit bodhidut seclusion is the highest asset, greater than everything. It requires setting aside at least an hour for secluding yourself in a room or field and finding ways to enter into a dialogue with your creator. Use words that evoke favor. Play, placate, placate, forget how to pronounce that. Placate. Placate, yeah. And conciliate in order to entreat and plead with God that he bring you closer to him to genuine worship. Conduct this prayer and conversation in the language you normally use, your native tongue, because it is difficult to express all that you desire to say in the holy tongue if it is not in your native tongue. So he's saying, if you understand English, talk in English. In your native tongue, you can express yourself fully. Share with God everything that is in your heart. Express your remorse and repentance for the past. You're pleased to genuinely merit drawing closer to God from this day forward and similar conversations, each individual according to spiritual standing. Now, again, he did caution, do this alone. Do this on the New York subway and you'll join the rest of them. This practice, if you've ever been in New York subway, you've seen people doing this. Um, this practice is extraordinarily beneficial. It is an extremely good path and guidance for drawing closer to God because it is a universal guide that encompasses everything. You should know that many renowned sadikim related that they attain their high degree of spirituality only through this practice. 
A perceptive individual will readily appreciate the great benefit of this practice, which raises a person higher and higher. Furthermore, it is a practice that is accessible to all people. Anyone can make use of this practice and thereby climb to spiritual heights. Fortunate are those who seize the opportunities this practice provides. So he's saying, go into the forest, talk to God. And the way you can shed your physical life and focus on God is by just talking. Talk what's on your heart. And hopefully you can elevate yourself to a higher moment through 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 speech. It's very fascinating and many do it and obviously it's successful. I want to note there are other more modern versions of this, not Rabbi Nachman Breslau. There's another one which, you know, is if you have the uh, teacher book, it's in text number 18, 19. And this is interesting. Sorry, text number 18. And he discusses uh, using more of a mantra type of thing. I'm sure you, for those of you who've been into other meditations, you've heard of mantra, but uh, this is from a rabbi, uh, Clonimus Kalman. And uh, he was a rabbi during, um, in the Warsaw Ghetto, I believe. And uh, he was killed during the war. Um, he talks about using a mantra. It's very interesting. And um, he talks about like, but using a Jewish mantra, of course. He says, for example, you know, say, you know, God is truly God, you know, and say it over and over in your mind. And so again, these are ways uh, of shedding your, and the whole idea here is to allow yourself a moment to shed your physical desires and your physical, um, the things that you desire physically and reach a spiritual place. Am I, I hope I'm sharing it. Yeah. So that's the, um, that's the idea. Now I do want to just check the time here. Okay. By the way, another great example of this is the Shema. When we say the Shema, we cover our eyes. Uh, so to speak, a moment of seclusion. We want to uh, seclude ourselves and separate from the world and allow ourselves to cling and access what's really important to us. The problem is that's very fleeting. It lasts about as long as we cover our eyes. I want to mention one more idea. And so this, this type of contemplation is within our ability today, although I'll give discussion later. And, I'm, and as I'll say a little bit soon, I'm not necessarily pushing this type of meditation, but this is a valid form of Jewish meditation, meditation of what we call which we can call separation, seclusion, and clinging, and allowing yourself to shed your, so to speak, your bodily desires and allow you to connect with your soul desires. You should know that these types of meditations have been practiced for a very, very long time. And uh, they, they were called which is basically the idea of allowing yourself to shed your physical physicality and uh, connect with your spirit. As you can imagine, if you can properly do such meditations, you might get a little toasty, okay? Because your soul, as we mentioned earlier, is like a fire. It's a flaming fire desiring to leave your body. And as I said earlier, it sounds a little bit like suicide. Well, actually, it could be a little suicidal um, if, not, if it's not done right. And in fact, our sages say as much that there were, it says there were once four great sages who, who meditated on the great mystical secrets and uh, only Rabbi Akiva came out safe and the rest of them uh, came on not to say, so I'm just trying to pull up the text over here. This is the last time I'm gonna move that far. Yeah, let's take a look over here about the, the dangers of this type of meditation. And uh, I'm not saying any of us will have those dangers because we don't, <laughs> we're, we're not that great. But back in the day when the people, when the great sages of the Talmud were able to do a deep meditation in such a level of shedding this, shedding the physical and connecting to the spirit, it can become dangerous. As you see over here, there were four individuals that entered the orchard. That means the Torah's mystical levels. And um, only Rabbi Akiva emerged safely. 
um, there are other texts in the in the um, other descriptions in the Talmud of people experiencing these very you might call transcendental mystical uh, meditations. And of there describes people reaching great heights. You know, they would they would meditate and discuss fiery flames around them. Uh, there's all all different types of um, there are all different types of this type of meditation, and um, in fact, Maimonides says that this type of meditation is what allowed people to become prophets. Um, it says the prophets would have to do meditation, and, and hopefully, uh, they would be able to um, access the spirituality of prophecy. So what am I saying here? What I'm saying in here is that this is a very, I don't want to delve further. Remember, I said I was give, wanted to give you the educational part of it too. Um, these types of meditations, if you look in ancient Jewish texts, you will find very transcendental meditations. What, is, what I mean is uh, meditations about very mystical ideas and, and you, you, you read descriptions of fiery flames. These are all things that are a little bit beyond us, I would say. Um, when you hear people talking about, oh, I read the Zohar and I experienced this, you know, uh, I don't think any, anybody today, unless they're, uh, you know, really exotic, is, is experiencing this type of meditation. Um, you know, that the great tzaddik and the great righteous people and the prophets and the Talmudic sages would, would experience for two reasons. Uh, for, one, for one, for most of us, Regular hitbodidut, regular uh, separation from the world is very difficult to imagine, reaching um, deep mystical ideas. And second of all, um, you can't really experience the great spirit that these sages experience without really understanding your soul, you know? So in other words, we might experience some experience, but I, I don't think you're really experiencing uh, or necessarily, ex we don't know, you're necessarily experiencing your soul um, because we don't, unless you study about your soul, you know much about your soul, but just, you know, people picking up a Zohar and deciding they're having these great visions and ideas, uh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm necessarily buying it or trusting it. Um, there's a story Rabbi Tzvi Freeman likes to tell is, um, the, the, the tradition is that the Baal Shem Tov had horses. Uh, he had, he had, sorry, he had a wagon that would, that would, uh, fly, so to speak. You would get from point A to point B very quickly. You know, you would get, let's say, in a wagon in Palm Harbor at two o'clock and he'd be in Miami at three o'clock, you know, on horse-drawn carriages. So he once described, imagine the horses, the horses of the Baal Shem Tov. They, they, you know, the, the wagon is flying and they're flying and the one horse talks to the other and says, wow, you feel we're flying. Wow, can you, can you see where we're going? He says, no, the, the earth is flying. We must not be horses anymore. We must be birds. And then they're flying faster. But no, we're flying faster. We must be angels. Oh, we're, we're not just any, we're seraphim. We're the holiest of angels. And they're discussing how holy and spiritual and great they are because they're flying so high. And then their trip ends, they land in Miami and the wagon driver comes and brings them some sugar cubes and they, they start eating the sugar cubes like, like good old horses. What was the point of his, uh, his idea over there? Is uh, don't, don't, <laughs> you know, don't get too caught up. These were horses the whole time, you know? So we might experience uh, very spiritual uh, experiences. And it's possible. I'm not going to say it's not possible. But if we're not really that spiritually attuned in general, like the great tzaddikim and tzaddikot, the great righteous people of the past, I, I don't know how much we can read into those experiences. I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm giving a downer over here, but I'm, I'm just putting a word of caution over here that although you may find descriptions of great spiritual experiences 
Um, always uh, just be wary of it. I'm not saying nobody will have them, but be wary and be cautious of it. Uh, because for most of us, we are not really that spiritually attuned that I would suppose that we would get such a great level. And if we would, uh, we might become a little Meshuggah like you had in the story over there, like Rabbi uh, Akiva's compatriots. But to close off this, um, this section, what this section really was about is understanding that our soul is this fiery desire. And if we can shed, if we can remove our distraction and shed our physical feelings, we can tap into a little bit more of our soul. I've described to you a little bit of the problems with this is it's very hard for us to not, you know, it's very hard for us to truly separate and experience our soul because we don't really understand our soul necessarily. And therefore this leads us to our second section, which is not spirituality that comes from separation, but spirituality that come that, that is a, um, what we might call direct spirituality. In other words, if we are not able to tune out our materialistic side and innately sense the divine, another channel to develop a spiritual perspective is hidbonunut, which means cognitive spiritual meditation, rooted in the word in the Hebrew word bina, hidbonunut from the word bina, which means understanding. And hit boninut, as opposed to what I said earlier, hit bodidut. And if I'm not confusing you, I, I now am, right? Earlier we discussed hit bodidut. Now we're discussing hit boninut. Is a practice of meditating on a concept or an idea to deepen your understanding and appreciation of it. In other words, while hit bodidut seeks to discover spirituality through disenge- disengaging from the body, hit boninut does so through a hyper engagement with the soul. If hit bodidut, is a meditation of detachment. Hit boninut is a meditation of connection with the soul consciousness. If we would put it in other words, hit bodidut is a meditation of clearing and hit boninut is focusing. In other words, if I'm trying to get in touch with my soul, the earlier meditation was, let me strip away the layers of the distraction. And now we're saying, well, if we're having trouble stripping away the layers of distraction, maybe focus on the connection with the spirit and then the distraction will fall away from by themselves. Now, obviously, this type of meditation requires a certain level of seclusion. In other words, as I said earlier, don't expect to be able to think about God in Times Square running around. Well, not think about God, but to meditate deeply, you know, in Times Square. Don't expect such a um, uh, such a experience. Um, but we are discussing now hit boninut. So again, if, if cutting out the physical and, and, and going to the forest and talking or all that doesn't, doesn't cut it for you, um, we want to discuss hit bonin with a meditation that um, instead of detachment is focused on a conscious buildup of connection with your soul. If we were to put it in other ways, hit bodidut, is so to speak opening the door and hit bonanut is stepping inside. So what is hit hit bonanut contemplation as we'll call it now? Um, <laughs> there was uh, say a joke to, to really lead into it. Uh, what did one mindful med- meditator say to the other mindful meditator? 
Are you not thinking what I'm not thinking? Okay, all right, sorry about that. So <laughs> um, that is hitbodidut, separation. We wanna get hitbodidut, we wanna think about something. So again, as we learned earlier, our, our souls are spiritual and they wanna connect with a divine that is beyond the material world. They wanna know God and sense his presence everywhere. That's what our soul wants. So if we can think about things that the soul thinks about, then we can get a deeper appreciation for what spirituality is, for things that our soul wants, and that will become the more dominant focus of ourselves. Again, what our soul thinks about and desires and, and wants is a little airy-fairy for us. What our soul um, seeks in life is, is far away from us. We seek, again, as we said earlier, pizza and sushi and vacations and money and houses and everything else. If we can think about things that the soul thinks about, then we can start to see the world in the lens of our soul. And then that's a way of connecting with the soul. And that's what Hitabonanut is about, is starting to see the world in the lenses of our soul. And that is why the first step of Hitabonanut, of connection contemplation, of connection meditation, is through studying the Kabbalah and the Hasidut, to, through studying Jewish mysticism, to better understand the spiritual nature of the universe, because the spiritual nature of the universe is our soul's perspective. If you can imagine when we die, what is our soul's perspective? That perspective is what we are trying to bring into our lives even when we are alive. However, just reading mystical texts alone will not allow you to experience that. Why? Because spiritual awareness goes against the natural level of our consciousness. Trust me, while we're all reading these texts over here, we're, we all have physical desires, right? Spiritual wisdom is, at the end of the day, abstract. It's foreign. And so to properly understand it, we will not only need to study the topic, we need to contemplate and use deliberate cognitive meditation. And I know that sounds funny, cognitive meditation, but that's what we're going to need to do. So to summarize, because I haven't really told you what, where, how you actually do it, but to summarize, what have I said? I said, hit bodidut is a way of trying to connect our soul by removing distraction, whether it's through talking, whether it's through ignoring, whether it's through uh, mantra, whatever it is, through emptying and clearing and just allowing our soul to come bursting forth. The problem with that is many of us are not necessarily very much in tune with our soul. Again, some of you will do it successfully, but some of us are not so in tune with our soul. And therefore, we're switching to look at hit boninut, which is the more Chabad approach. And hit boninut is contemplating and meditating and thinking about ideas that our soul thinks about, looking at the world through the viewpoint of our soul and the spirit. And when we do it in the right way, we can make it real to us. Let me share a text and then I'll give you a story to go along with what I'm saying because nothing works without a story. So let's take a look over here. Uh, okay. Here you have uh, another different uh, types of meditation. Okay. Let's take a look. The central, all right. This is from Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schnerson, the, the sixth Chabad Rebbe. He says like this. A central foundation of this study of mysticism is to repeatedly spend considerable time in deep contemplation on the subject matter being studied. This is the practice that is referred to as hit bonanot, which means to firmly visualize the concept and to analyze it deeply. 
what are we talking about? Why, in other words, why does the text say it's not, no, the question is, why is it not enough to study text? Why is there meditation involved over here? That's really what, what we're getting to. In other words, if I want to live a life of spirit, why can I just study text? Why is there this need for this meditation? And so the answer is, let me present it to you with um, a story. There was a story of the, uh, the second Chabad Rebbe. And uh, he had a friend that he grew up with. And as you can imagine, he, he turned into a Rebbe and his friend was a regular person. And, um, you know, this uh, what they call the uh, diaper syndrome, right? Diaper syndrome is you have trouble respecting. Uh, if somebody changed your diapers, they have trouble respecting you. It's a diaper syndrome is called. So similar idea. If you have a friend, you know, that you grew up with, you have trouble respecting, right? If you have any friends that became famous, you're like, oh, I knew him, you know, when he was young. So the same thing happened to the Mitla Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe. Before he was a Rebbe, but he was one time sitting in the synagogue and praying for very long. And his friend, who was now a businessman, came and said, look, we, we, we grew up together. We studied the same text. I studied mysticism, too. I, I, am, I know all of the deep ideas behind prayer, all the mystical ideas behind prayer. But... Uh, I don't pray as long as you do. Well, what, what are you, a slow learner? Like, what's going on over here? You know, what's, what's, why do you pray for so long? He says, let me ask you a question. He says, you go on business? He says, yes. So where, where do you go on business to? He says, oh, I go to Leipzig. Leipzig was the famous business city in those days. And so he says, oh, Leipzig, oh, what do you buy there? He says, oh, I buy furs for my fur business. He says, and how long does it take to get there from your hometown? Oh, it says, he says about two weeks to get there, a week to set up and find things and buy it and put it in the wagon, and bring it back. So it takes about a month and a half out of my life. So the Mitzvah Rebbe tells him, I don't understand. He says, instead of going to Leipzig and wasting all that time, why don't you sit in your house? Imagine in your mind, you took the journey to Leipzig. Imagine in your mind, you went and you bought the products. And then imagine in your mind, you brought it back and you'd save yourself a whole long trip. You could do the whole long trip in one day. He says, what are you talking about? Imagine in my mind, it wouldn't be real. I, I wouldn't have the merchandise. I wouldn't have what to sell. He says, ah, it wouldn't be real. Ah, he says, that's exactly. You and I know the same mystical ideas, but for you, it's like imagining going to Leipzig. For me, I actually want to be in Leipzig. I'm trying to get there. Those spiritual meditations, I don't just want to know the meditations. I want to live them. This is really the idea and the problem of spirituality. Spirituality is far out there. And so even when you read about it, and possibly even when you understand it, it could be like imagining you're going on a trip. It's like my grandmother always says, I don't have to go tour or Krakow or wherever. She says, oh, I watch the TV show. I guess I'm, it's as if I'm there, but it's not really. That's what he's saying. Spiritual, they're far concepts. Physical is very easy. You know, if I were to tell you, imagine in your picture in your mind, a table, you can depict the table in, you know, if you ever shop on Amazon today, might you want to buy something? They have what's called 3D view, right? You can even like place the item in your house, right? On your phone, you can take a picture of the room. You put the bookshelf in the place. You can totally get a concept of the, the bookshelf even without seeing it. This is what we're trying to do with spiritual meditation, meditation with spiritual things. We're trying to take a concept that's a concept and being able to visualize it as if, so to speak, I'm on my Amazon app and I can stick it in my room. We want to be able to see the world in that way, not just that it's an idea, but that it's real. You know, we as human beings, this is why we have so many ideas that we know, but then we don't live them because they're not real to us like that thing that's in front of us. You know, we have this, we've studied this idea of why it's important to wake up early in the morning, let's say, but then your bed is right there or vice versa, whatever type of person you are. You're late night, you know, we have all these ideas, 
but they're not real. They're not there. They're their ideas. And so this is what spiritual meditation is about. Study those mystical texts, but then study them in a way that they become real. And this is what the Torah says when it says in Deuteronomy, when it says, you shall take it to your heart. This is from the uh, Shema. Let's take a look at the text. This is the idea. This is what the Torah is trying to tell us. Oops, one second. Take it to your heart. Uh, you shall place it upon your heart to take it upon your heart. This is from the Shema. And as Rabbeinu Bechaye says, he explains, this is a positive command to know God. We are enjoined to investigate and develop an appreciation of God's unity and not to rely solely on received tradition. However, since spiritual understanding of the divine is abstract and not readily understood, the verse emphasizes that we must take it to heart. The Hebrew word for take it in the verse more literally means return it, indicating that must, we must repeatedly contemplate the concept until it settles in our mind. The term take to heart always refers to matter that requires profound concentration and extra focused thinking. So it's bonanut, takes deep concentration and applied thought, and it's designed to bring the idea from thought and the information, and to bring it to life. This cognitive meditation bridges the gap of the subject between us and it, allowing the abstract mystical idea to assimilate and become part of our thinking. And I'll read one more um, text over here. I'll read text 11b. Just to bring out what I said a moment ago. 11b. The Hasidic practice of Hidbonut meditation involves actively contemplating a spiritual concept until it expands our creative intelligence. It's an interesting word. Expands our creative intelligence, deepens our awareness, and becomes an indelible part of our consciousness. So what we're after is not just to understand a concept, but to make a concept part of our consciousness. So again, what these texts are illustrating is that hit bonenut meditation process is that it serves not only to deepen your understanding of a given subject, but also builds an emotional relationship through visualizing a subject and engaging with it deeply. When you deeply contemplate a spiritual idea and visualize it, it becomes familiar to you and a part of your consciousness. Simply put, the more we develop a real spiritual theology and philosophy of God through meditation and begin to appreciate his presence in the world, the more real he is in our lives and the deeper the soul's spiritual awareness is embedded in our consciousness, leading us to sense spirituality and feel an emotional closeness with God. So you can learn about God all day and how God is great and amazing and the most important thing in the world, but then you're going to walk away and you're going to turn on your TV show, you're going to open your phone, you're going to head to your, your ball game, you're going to buy your sushi, you're going to do all those things because it hasn't assimilated and become part of your mind. And what we have to do is through honest contemplation and deep focus to develop a authentic closeness with God. So now that is all for what is Hitzbonanut. Now you may say, well, Rabbi, how do we actually do it? Well, we're going to do a practice. We're going to read a text. We're going to read a Hasidic text. That's going to be text number three. And in this text, we are going to allow ourselves a way to take a concept 
and try to think about it a little bit so that it can become a part of ourselves by, by thinking about it more, deeply understanding it, and then taking a moment to think about it, um, hopefully it can become a way we look at the world and changing our outlook on the world. And that really enables us to become more of the spirit. So this text we're going to read is uh, from a discourse written by Rabbi Shalom Dober Shnerson, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, written in 1898. I do want to say one more thing before I read it. Uh, there are many, many of these texts through Hasidic philosophy. When I first st started studying Hasidic philosophy as a young boy, uh, 14, 15, whatever, not, not including Tanya. Tanya is a little different, but many texts, I would always wonder, like, it's like, why is there so much focus in all these spiritual worlds? Like, it's like a hyper-focus and there's four worlds, but there's really a fifth. And if you look at, if you look at the worlds this way, you can, you know, if you dissect the idea and there's this many souls and, and how to understand this, like, I, I don't know, to me, it was just like, a lot of redundancy in it and, and why all this detail about all the spiritual worlds that I'm not living. And I just think, no, there's a God and there's commandments and there's mitzvahs. And the answer is that these texts allow us to live that life of our soul. Through studying these concepts deeply, we can view the world and we can live in the spirit while we're living here on earth. A great Hasidic person is not phased by anything in this world because they're focused on something higher. They're focused on the spirit. They're focused on worlds beyond. Yes, in chat in, in in class number three, we'll discuss how you can take that and still do your mission in a certain. And that's not the focus of today's class. But what I'm trying to say today, what we're trying to say is how can we live in this world and a world beyond? When when you look at um, the real pioneers of Chabad, I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the ones who went in the 50s and 60s when it was an unfriendly world to Chabad representative. When they would come down to cities and the cities would say. Um, you know, we don't need you and we don't want your type here and we don't care for you, right? It wasn't like today where the people know about Hasidic Jews everywhere and, uh, you know, where Chabad is everywhere and everybody heard about it, knows about it. They, these were the real pioneers and it was real rough going. Um, you know, a lot of them were in terrible debt and everything else. And how would they have the audacity to knock on people's doors? People would throw them out and come back the next week. Uh, it's all because they, and, and when you heard these people speak and I heard them speak, um, a lot of them are older now. They, they really did not, they were not phased by this world. They didn't live in this world. They didn't um, see a secretary throwing them out of the office as, as anything big. In other words, I'm not trying to compare them to, in other words, Lahavdil, there's what they call the witnesses, right? The witnesses are a little different. They're like, oh, I got kicked out of one house. Oh, well, you know, I'll get to another house. It's not that they were, you know, it's not like, you know, if I get one out of a hundred, it's worth it. That wasn't the idea. They weren't phased because they, they lived beyond. They, they weren't embarrassed. They would walk around how they were and who they were. And they were proud of who they were because they understood, what are you living? Your TV and popcorn and, 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 and movie theaters. We're living in a much more spiritual place. Yeah, I'm walking on this earth, but I know there's much more to this earth than what you see. And so if we can bring into our lives that type of outlook, then we won't be embarrassed. You know, the, the, the physical things that are dragging us down and preventing us from our mission and meaning in life will stop holding us back because they will become less important. And that's what we're going to see in this next text, really. Um, this is one way of seeing that. So let's take a look. Um, okay. Oops. All right. Let's take a look. Um, what is it? Text number 13. Okay. So like this, this is a powerful idea. Everything that exists I should make it bigger so everybody can see it better. Ooh, that's really large. Okay. 
Okay, let's read. Everything that exists is comprised of a physical form and a spiritual divine energy that creates and animates the entity's physical existence. And again, he says everything. This is clearly demonstrable in animals and humans. They have an animating spirit. In other words, you don't see it in rocks as clearly, but you can see it in animals and people. If the spirit were to leave the body, the body would no longer be classified as alive and the body would begin to decompose and turn to dust. This is because the very existence of the body hinges upon the spiritual enemy that, uh, energy that animates it. Oops. The same is true of vegetation. It is also possesses an animating spirit. Even inanimate objects possess some sort of energizing spirit that keeps them in existence and prevents their disappearance. Based on this awareness, again, awareness that everything has a spirit, a soul, spirituality is referred to as good and life because it is a living force that remains alive and in existence forever. Whereas physical matter is referred to as negative and death because it decomposes and ceases to exist without the spirit within it. It has no means of existing independently. From my flesh, I can perceive God, meaning that the human experience informs our understanding of God. We intuitively sense that we have a life force that provides us with our life, and that is our primary identity, and that were our soul to leave our body, the body would be left like an inanimate rock and eventually decompose and disappear. The same is true with all that exists. The entire cosmos and all its contents exist due to a divine spirit that gives existence to everything. That divine light and force is the entire life and sustaining power of all that exists. If it departs, all existence will revert to absolute nothingness. If we meditate on this idea, we realize that the material existence of each, entire, of each entity is entirely dependent on the spiritual force within it. And that physicality is nullified before the presence of the divine light that is its source of existence. This realization will inspire a powerful desire, love and yearning for the divine. We will no longer desire that which exists only superficially and which is in fact death, decomposing, disappearing. And we will desire to attach to the divinity that is true life and the mainstay of existence. So that's a powerful text. And you can read it and, 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 and uh, you know, read it superficially. But if you just read it, then you may not get really fully out of it what we, what you may get out of it if you think about it. If we think about it, what is this text trying to say? This text is trying to say, maybe you've gathered from it. It's trying to say that everything has a spirit. And if the spirit disappears, um, spirituality is lurking everywhere. If the spirit of it, if the soul of it disappears, it has no existence anymore, right? That's a very simple idea. And you say, oh, that's a great idea. And therefore I should always seek the spirit. But really is that life-changing? But then when we think about it a little bit more, if we were to think about this concept a little more that everything has a soul, you'll find it everywhere in your life. If you turn to page, oh, sorry, 56, um, let's take a little exercises just to show you just how true this idea is. Just to show you how true this idea is, let's take a look at um, here. Um, let's make this. Identify the body and the soul in the following scenarios, okay? Identify the body and the soul in the following scenarios. Dinner with a spouse or a close friend. What is the body and what is the soul of the dinner? Disciplining a child. What is the body? What is the soul? 
exercising at a gym. What is the body and what is the soul? Shaking hands on a deal. What is the body and what is the soul? If we take the text that we read and we think about it for a moment, we realize that everything in life, not just talking about bodies, every detail of life has a body and a soul. For example, a dinner with a spouse. There's the actions. You know, you go out to the dinner and you talk, but the, that's the body. The soul of it is the connection. If there's no connection and you just had the body of it, that would be a waste of your time. Shaking hands for a deal. Let's take a look. You're shaking it. Is shaking hands a deal? No. The shaking hands is the body that depicts that there's a deal going on. That there's a commitment that you're going to follow through with this deal. If you were to uh, shake hands, but there was no deal, it would mean nothing. Shaking hands means nothing. If there is no soul to it, everything, when you take the soul out of it, it means absolutely nothing, right? Let's say, um, right? So let's say, for example, working out, exercise. There's the physical pain of working out. And the soul is that you're getting healthier, the health benefits. If there was no health benefit, then the physical pain of the exercise would be meaningless and you would not want it, right? So everything has a soul and a body. Your work has a soul and a body. Everything that you do in life has a soul and a body. And if the items in your life were devoid of the soul, you would have no desire for it because the body is so external. The soul is what makes it alive. That handshake is only a handshake because there's a soul behind it, because there's a business deal behind it. A dinner is only a dinner because there's a connection behind it. The exercise is only exercise because of the health benefits it brings. And, and disciplining your children is only because you're trying to lead them along the right path. The actual uh, spanking them, God forbid, right? Not spanking. Uh, whatever it is that you do. Um, it was a joke, by the way. Okay. The, the actual whatever you do, that's not what you're, that's not what you're in for. Uh, having company over for dinner is not about the consumption, about the food. A passive seder is uh, more than just uh, uh, more than just the the hard matzah, right? There's 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 a deep meaning behind it. And so, at every moment in life, really, what this text was saying is that we have to. Oh, let me give you another great example. Let's say you're in kindergarten, you're learning math, right? Two apples plus two apples. It's four apples, right? Four apples plus four apples is eight apples. If a student 10 years later is still talking about apples, then they, they, they haven't figured out math. In other words, they, 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 they stuck on the body, which was the apples, and they forgot the soul, which is the math, right? <laughs> they got lost in, in the complete external part of it, and they, and they missed the soul. The same thing is, uh, you know, they said there were once people debating who was bigger, George Washington or uh, Abraham Lincoln. And uh, so somebody, the town Yoko came over and says, who was bigger? Obviously Lincoln, he was much taller. He says, no, we're not discussing bigger, you know, bigger, bigger, bigger. We're discussing who was bigger, you know, it was a bigger deal. It was a larger, you know, people we can get, we can get lost in the body. And so this is really the idea is that, that breaking it down, this, these were the three big ideas in that text is A, everything has a divine spirit within it, a soul, Right, so a everything has a soul. B, more importantly, the spiritual soul of everything is its source of life. In other words, without the soul, there would be nothing there. And C, since the spiritual content is everything, that's what we should value. And so, just as we value in any area of our life the soul, we never think about it. But just as we value the soul of everything in our lives, then we should look generally at our life 
and think about the soul of our life in general. Think about our soul, it's animating. Think about the life force. Think about the godly life force that's in everything. And so if we're living a life, we want to focus on the soul of it, not in the body of it. When we eat food, we don't want to think about just the food. We want to think uh, about the deeper meaning of why we're eating the food. What's the purpose in it? Because just as in anything in life, the soul, the, the, the body itself is, is meaningless, we should think about that in our, in our general life. And this is really how the soul looks at the world. When the soul looks at the world, it sees the same thing. The same way that if you were to go to a dinner and, and have that dinner, but there was no love, the food would be meaningless to you. That's how your soul looks at every meal that you eat. When you're indulging in that meal, it's like you're going to dinner with your spouse and you're fighting. It's like you're buying a present for your spouse and you're not getting along. It's meaningless. There's a body, but there's no soul. And if there's no soul, it's meaningless. And that's how the soul looks at this world, your soul inside of you. And so what you're trying to do when you take this concept and you not just take it, but you think about it to the point where you can visualize it and it doesn't happen in a day. You know, this is what we discussed also in last class. You got to take these concepts and think about it and spend the time in the morning. So first you got to read the text. Then you got to think it over and get into the details and you question and you answer and then you sit there and you think about it and you imagine it and, and you bring examples in modern day life. When you can do that and, and slowly you can start to visualize these ideas in real life to the point where the Alter Rebbe said, you know, when, when I go out, I don't see the, the physical matter. I see the, the word of God that's vivifying it. You know, we want to get, get, we're never going to get there fully, but we want to get a little bit of that, a little bit of, that, of, of our soul's focus. And when you can look at the world the way your soul looks at it, and it's truly the way your soul looks at it, then the bodily things fall away a little bit. And so this is what Hidbonanut is about. Hidbonanut is about thinking about things that your soul would think about, thinking about the spirit. And the reason that you can connect with the spirit is because you have that spirit inside of you because you have that soul, that godly soul. And so if you take a moment and contemplate spiritual ideas and you take spiritual text and you look at it and you learn it and you think about it and you contemplate over it, you have that ability to live in that type of lifestyle. And this is really what it's about. And this is really what um, uh, Jewish and uh, Hasidic meditation is about. And um, I want to uh, just on that note talk about that meditation. And enough, there was a story. I say it's a story, it's a different religion or not, but the story is a good story. So it goes, um, it goes like this. There was one say uh, house where it's very poor house, and uh, you know the father saw the girl, and the little girl, and his daughter was cutting up some uh, some uh, foil in the house. And he starts screaming at her, why are you cutting foil? Don't you know it's a waste of money? You're destroying, you know, we're so poor. We had nothing in the house. So the guy was not only poor, he had a poor self-esteem and he had anger management issues. And so he's screaming at his daughter. And um, okay, then the next morning he wakes up and he sees on the dinner and then the, on the breakfast table next to his breakfast, there's a big box covered with his foil. His daughter made him a present. Ah, now the whole story changes around. Oh, thank you so much. And he rips open the present. He opens up the box. And he opens it and it was empty. And now he starts to scream again. What are you doing? You're making these presents. You're mocking me. And the daughter looks at him and says, this box is not empty. This box is full of my kisses, full of my love. And the story ends. The father would take that box with him to work. And obviously he was a guy with anger management issues. We can see from the story. 
And whenever he had a difficult time, he would open up that box and feel that love from his daughter. And so what's the idea of the story is that there are these, these intangibles in life, the love and the feeling, and we need to find ways to tach, tap into those intangibles. And that's what Hasidic meditation is about, is that the soul of everything, which is the real thing in life, the important thing in life, like for that father, the love of his daughter, the real things in life, the way to tap into them is by being able to look at them like when you take that cell phone from Amazon and you can see that table in your room, you want to be able to view the world in that way, view the world in the way that your soul sees it. And the only way to do it is through cognitive meditation. What that means is studying a concept, analyzing it, and not just understanding it, but after you churn it over in your mind, maybe close your eyes, however it will work for you, but think of that concept and do it often. You have to do it often enough. That's the other thing. Uh, then you will be able to view the world in, your, in the way that your soul views it. And that is Hasidic Hittibonanut meditation. And the great Chabad Hasidic Rebbe's would say, this is something that we all have to do at least once a day for five minutes. Because if we want to have any hope of having a spiritual life and viewing the world in a spiritual way, it's something that we have to do, not just once or twice, but we have to do it very, very often. Because if you don't do it at least once a day, um, you know, you, you lose touch of it and um, that's not going to be the way to do it. This is the official end of the class. I'm going to show a video. I'm going to show a video meditation with Rabbi Label Wolf again on the, the concept that we just said. I want to go over the key points of what we said first uh, before we end this, uh, before I show that video. And if you don't want to stay for the video, that's perfectly fine if meditation is not your thing. Um, although, of course, meditation has to be your thing after this class, but some types of meditation may not be your style, I should say. Um, so the key points we said today is we are comprised of a body of, and a soul, each of which have a unique character and drive. The body is driven by the material. The soul is driven by the spiritual drive to connect with what's real. One way to perceive the spiritual drive of the soul is through hit bodidut, separation, which is the root of the Breslov uh, faction. And then there is another way, uh, which is, um, there's a meditation known as Hitzbonenut, which is cognitive meditation, taking concepts. Notice instead of separation from the world, taking, uh, uh, connecting with ideas that your soul connects with, and through that, having the ability to view the world the way your soul views it, and then automatically your physical pursuits will go away. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to show this video, and uh, that's what it's going to be. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? No. No, no I can't hear it. Oh. You weren't able to hear it, right? No. One more time. And if not, you'll get the video after the class. But again, the official class is over. Oh, I didn't collect share sound. Okay, that's why. <laughs> okay, it's not as long of a video as last time. It's about four minutes. Now, uh, hopefully you'll hear it this time. Will you send us the video? Yeah, I'm going to play now. See if you hear it. Do you hear it now? You hear yes. it now? We hear it. What? We hear it. You hear it, okay. Spirituality 
means to sense viscerally how meaningful every single moment and item of life is. Which means to enter into a relationship soul to soul. And we can do so with everything that we find in our daily activities. So gently close your eyes and just become aware of a source of light in your head, pleasant, warm, spreading throughout your headspace, enlightening. animating and flowing down into your lower body feeling comfortable and warm intensify that light source so it spreads through your limbs allowing them to feel animated, special with Hashem's light, that light which is your soul's light. Everything possesses a soul spark. The stone also has a soul. If you peer into the stone and are able to see molecules, atoms, smaller particles even, all these are energies that are manifested. Beneath each of these lies a spiritual force. The spiritual force of a stone is nefesh. A flower also possesses a soul spark, but it's more developed. It's called ruach, allowing the flower to have locomotion, movement growth, inclination towards the sun. It has both nefesh and ruach. The animal has an even more advanced soul system. It has the nefesh to maintain its physical state, ruach providing it with animation, movement, but also neshama, which provides it with rudimentary communication capacity. And then there's the human being, who possesses all three, plus the level of soul known as chaya, the level of soul that provides consciousness, awareness of the flow of time, present, past, and future, 
hopes, aspirations, values, beliefs. We encounter all four levels in life. Allow that encounter to be soul to soul, recognizing that everything possesses value, godliness, purpose, and only by relating spiritually to the essence of that soul do we connect meaningfully. Live a deep and meaningful life. Can't hear you. 